You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco for episode 315, dated Friday, July 7th, 2023. With us, of course, we have our co-host and good friend, Peter Alchil. Peter, what's happening? Not a lot. We actually having pleasant weather in Columbia for a few days before it gets back to 95 on Tuesday. So uh, I'm just grateful that we're having the nice weather we're having here. All right. Very good. Before we continue with our special guest, let me do some acknowledging and some thanking of people. We start out with Raymond Gay, our producer. Thank you for doing what you do. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for hosting our programs on your chat line, Bulletin Board 15. Thank you very much. I also want to thank our media sources for airing us when they do. Thank you so much. Also, Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions, thank you for archiving in perspective on my website. Just go to www.brancoevents.com if you want to check out our archive programs that Jackie put up there. Click on In Perspective Podcasts and you will see them. Merci, Jackie. And I also want to give some shout-outs to three faithful listeners who came forward and made some comments about previous shows. That would be David Beharian of Massachusetts, Rick Troiano from Florida, and Susan Jones from Indiana. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. We're very pleased to have with us today another author, and her name is E.L. Roth. And she's going to talk about a couple of books, Inheriting Ghost Manor, and Prophecy of Dragon Sight. Well, it sounds sounds pretty Halloween-like, but I think a lot of people are very fascinated with those kind of issues and topics. E.L., thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. So, E.L., um, I, I need to say one thing first before we get started. And um, I know uh, there are two books that are on the table to discuss. Um, I was able to read the, the Prophecy of the Dragon Sight book, I was not able to get to the Inheriting the Ghost Manor book. So I'm hoping it's okay that we'll focus primarily, but not exclusively on the uh, Dragon book. But we will uh, have, to, you know, we will talk about the Inheriting Ghost Manor book as well. Um, they're both, the, the book I read about dragons is, um, is a unique and interesting book and we'll have plenty of things to talk about. So I hope that's okay, uh, uh, with you. Um, that's fine. Okay. So, um, I would like to start with, uh, how did you get interested in writing? Well, um, in, at the very end of 2019, I was let go of my position as a legal assistant and, um, was sitting at home trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life about now that I was no longer working 40 hours a week. And I've always been an avid reader. And then after the loss of my sight, uh, an avid ebook listener. And while reading or listening to a lot of books in my spare time, I discovered that some of them left me wanting more. And I thought, maybe I could do this and let's give it a hand. So there I went. I gave it a shot. And Inheriting Ghost Manor was my first book. And talk a little about that book. You know, what's the sort of the premise of the book? 
what got you started on the book and, uh, you know, sort of talk about that book a little bit. So in Inheriting Ghost Manor, I was kind of getting the conception of a book where somebody inherited something that turned out to be completely opposite of what they thought they were getting. And in Inheriting Ghost Manor, there was a the main character, KT Thorndike, had learned that she inherited an English manor, but in order to get the inheritance, she had to live in the manor for a year, and the manor was haunted. She didn't know she anything about the relatives, and she really needed the money because she didn't have any money. She was extremely down on her luck, so she decided to take the challenge of living in the manor and finding out about her ancestors who had lived there and to see if she could find out why it was haunted. And so she uh, presumably uh, be- begins the journey of finding out why it's haunted. My understanding is from, from what you said in the email that there's a follow-up uh, on that book coming out pretty soon, right? Um, actually, it's not necessarily a follow-up to that book because her story ends at that book. But the next book that will be published in just a few weeks is Inheriting Goes to Island. And it's about another person who receives inher- an inheritance that he didn't expect, which is um, includes an island that's located in the San Juan Islands of Washington State. And in that book, somebody has attempted to kidnap his young son, who's only four, and he flees to the island in order to protect his son from the kidnapper. And then he discovers that the island and the house on the island is haunted. So he's left with the dilemma of keeping his son safe by staying on the island or keeping his son safe by confronting the kidnapper on the mainland. So he, he, uh, he, uh, they have to decide, I guess, which, which place is safer or which, which. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. so he works through the process of, um, trying to resolve the issue of the ghosts on the island in order to keep the sun safe. Who handles the inheritance for these recipients? Who handles them? Well, I I mean, if all the ancestors are deceased and everything's haunted, who makes that determination and how how does that process work about, you know, inheriting everything? Um, Well, in inheriting ghosts... Go in ahead. Inheriting Ghost Manor, the inheritance is gives, it comes through her, her from her dis, newly deceased great uncle that she didn't know because her father, who would have been his, um, heir, died when she was five. So she didn't know this great uncle existed. And on Inheriting Ghost Island, the inheritance comes from Bryce, the main character, from his grandfather who has recently passed. So you you mentioned uh, in your earlier in the show uh, of your sort of interest in sort of the paranormal and magic and so on and so forth uh, by reading books and how early has this interest gone? You know, back back in your life, how how you know how. When did you start getting interested in the paranormal and magic and ghosts and all those, all those things? I have always liked 
an eclectic type of books. If you hand me a book, I'll probably read it, even if it's something that I'm not sure I'm uh, familiar with. So I like all kinds of books. And I decided that by writing paranormal or fantasy, that it helps to take people away from their problems in today's world and to take them to somebody else's problems that are very unique and different for them. Okay. So um, let us uh, focus on, for a while, the a prophecy of Dragon Sight. And I want to start with the opening words of the book. And if you could sort of talk about the significance of those words and how you chose to start the book with those words. So the opening words of the book are as follows. When a dragon lord is born, a prophecy for his life is magically written. So Dorian's prophecy reads, Born like the sun, so golden and bright, learn your talents of wisdom and might. Live with honor in truth and the light. Love will give to the one her sight. And then you have Mandrake's prophecy, which reads, Born in black while others sleep. Learn your talents without a peep. Live with honor and truth you keep. Love lost once, given back as deep. So talk about those prophecies. So throughout the book, the prophecy, it shows how those prophecies come true in the book. So. I had decided after writing a portion of the book that it would be fun if the book and the dragon lords had a prophecy that they were seeing come true in their lives. So then I went back and wrote the prophecies. <laughs> so uh, who who are Dorian and uh, Mandrake? Dorian and Mandrake are the Two of the dragon lords, Dorian is the high lord of the dragon lords. He is the top dragon lord. And Mandrake is one of the five first in command dragon lords. They each, each of the first in command rule a continent on the world of Cordray, which is the home of the dragons. So Cordray is a, is a, uh, a made up place, right? It's a fa- fantasy. Yes, place. it's it's a made up world. I made it all up. It's just a, a world that takes place all on its own out in the middle of someplace. Someplace, <laughs> and and, and uh, was was it based on anything? Was was there anything uh, you were thinking about when you, when you created this fantasy place? No, I just decided that um, I was told by somebody when I said I was interested in learning how to write, and I was part of the way through writing Inheriting Ghost Manor, that if I was going to write, I would need to do a lot of research. And I thought, maybe not if I made up the world. If I made up the world, and as long as that world was consistent with the rules and laws pertaining to that world then I wouldn't have to do any kind of research. So I, I made up that. the world of Cordray. I agree with that. When you write fiction, it's your own free-flowing imagination. It doesn't have to do with, well, if I'm writing something nonfiction, I have to have some facts to go along with what I'm saying. But even if you're writing fiction, uh, you, uh, unless it's a fantasy, 
uh, if you're writing a, a, something, a, a story based on reality, you have to have some knowledge of the reality to make it work. You know, you have, of the of the time frame it's being written. Uh, and so the nice thing about this book is it's it's a totally made up world. So uh, what are the what are the key uh, elements of this world that are important for the reader to know? Yeah. The key elements are that the dragons are the lords and the lords are the dragons. They are dragon shifters. So the magic of that world, the dragon can shift into human form, you might say. And that's when they're in their dragon lord form. Or they can be in their dragon form, in which case they are large, fierce-looking dragons, which come in all colors of the rainbow. And the dragons only choose a mate one month a year. And those mates come from the non-dragons, that non-dragon people that populate their world, the females of that world. And so in order to put the occupants of the world at ease, they have a mating gathering. And each year that mating gathering is held at one of the five different continents. And all the girls 18 to 23 that are eligible are invited to the castle to attend the mating gathering, in which case they are simply introduced to the Lord and the magic of the dragons will tell the dragon Lord if that is his mate or not. And how does that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, at this, at the beginning of Prophecy of Dragon Sight, the mating gathering is about to take place and that's where some of the early problems come out with some of the characters in the book. So uh, um, the mating ceremony, as you said, how, how is the how is how is the mate actually chosen? You know, the, all the 18 to 23 year olds show up at the palace. Um, and how does the actual mating take place? I, I don't want you to give too much away, but how does the how how do the dragons decide who their mate is? As soon as the dragon lord enters the room, he generally knows through the magic of Cordray that his mate is close by, but he doesn't know which girl in that long line of girls is his actual mate until he touches her hand. At that point in time, the dragon part of the dragon lord knows that that is his mate. Interesting. So, and it's, it's, it's it's not every day that a mate is found. I think in the year uh, that the book, you know, uh, that, that the mating ceremony takes place, what's it? Eleven eleven pairings take place, or something like that. Is that the right number? It's a small. It's a small number. Right, right. It's it takes the magic a long time to find the right mate, and they only can find the mate during that one mating month each year. So if the mate is not found then they'll have to wait until the next year to see if they find her. And how how old do dragons live to be on Cordray? On Cordray, the dragons will be live to be five or six hundred years old, whereas the non-dragons have the usual lifespan as we do here on Earth of sixty to eighty years. So and, and some dragons never find a mate at all. Uh if I I read your book correct. And sometimes it takes hundreds of years to, for the dragon to find a mate. It's an unusual right. event for, for, for the mate to be found. So let's talk about 
uh, uh, two of the mates. Um, and, and, uh, one of the mates is blind. Talk about that a little bit. Well, that was the other thing that what I was told when I was to write was write what you know. So I decided that I would make one of the mates blind and incorporate a little bit of what that is like for all of us who work, go through the world in that way. She was blind. Her name is Tressa and she was blinded at age 10 um, through an accident. And lives with her uncle, who is a very abusive man. And her very best friend, Anna, lives next door to her. And Anna and Anna's parents try to help protect Tressa from her uncle. When it comes time to leave for the mating gathering, and Tressa's old enough to go, as is Anna, her uncle tries to prevent her from going, but Mandrake, Mandrake, the dragon lord, ensures that she and Anna are able to go to the mating gathering. How old do you have to be to go to the mating? It's for girls 18 to 23. So they want girls who are grown up enough to know what it is to be married. And um, they also have to be unattached. So if the girl has fallen in love with a boy from her village, even if she goes to the mating gathering, she will not be chosen as the dragon lord's mate because her heart has already been given away. Or if she's married already, she's not eligible to go to the mating gathering. So uh, without getting too personal, how close to Teresa, uh, to Teresa, uh, how does she compare with your experience going blind? Um, besides being blind, there's really nothing like Tressa and myself. I am lost my sight because of retinitis pigmentosa, and I lost it much later in life. <laughs> and uh, Tressa has a dog, right? Yes, Tressa has a dog named Patchy. That is her guide dog. Now, Patchy is based upon my own first guide dog, Apache. Ah. I didn't figure I could name him the dog in the book Apache because of today's political mm. atmosphere, even though that was the name the dog was given to me with. And I am one-eighth Apache Indian, but I didn't want to argue the point, so I changed his name to Patchy. I like Patchy. I thought Patchy was 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 a cool name. And so how in in the in the magic world of card drain, how was Patchy trained? Patchy was trained simply because a neighbor who had that the dog was um raised by knew that Tressa needed somebody to help her around and he trained her and worked with her and the dog to be her companion and to help escort her. So similar to how guide dogs are trained today, Patchy was trained, but it was trained simply by a man who wanted to give Tressa some way of moving more about the world and being her companion. And um, how, um, how, so Patchy, Patchy, I'm sorry, Tressa and Anna are very close. And what's the role of Anna in this, in the story? How does, what, what role does Anna play in all of this? 
Well, it turns out after Anna attends the mating gathering and she is not chosen, Mandrake, who had lost his mate already 40 years earlier in childbirth, makes the decision to choose Anna to be his second mate, which is rarely done. But it that also fulfills Mandrake's prophecy where it says he will love again twice. Uh, he will love a second t- time just as deep. So then he takes Anna as his second mate and then falls in love with her as well. So talk about the, so talk about the wedding ceremony. So the, 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 you know, the, the pairings take place and, uh, they, uh, each, each pair goes and, and there is a real ceremony that goes on where the, the women figure out, finally find out how the system really works. Talk about that. So once the mates are chosen, then the day of the wedding and mating takes place. And the girl is led into the ceremony hall by her dragon lord. And he asks her to first swear that what is revealed in the hall will never be told to anybody outside of their community. And when that promise is made, then he reveals that he is a dragon as well as being the Lord. And he reveals the duality of the, of the person. And how does he reveal his dragonness as it were? He turns into a dragon right in front of her. And that's what that, uh, that was sort of a surprising thing for these, these women, right? You know, they're nice male folks all turn to this wild dragon. How did they right. feel about that? How did they yeah. feel about that? Afterwards? Yeah. How, how did they feel about it? Well, by this time, the hope is, is that they will realize that the dragon will not do them any harm. And it's just another side of their, their mate that it's just another part of his, you might say, personality. And they then accept that, yes, they are chosen to be a mate to the Lord and to his dragon side. And they're chosen by both sides of the person. And once the, the marriage is consummated, as it, as it were, um, the, uh, the women who are married uh, get certain uh, benefits, shall we say, right? They they live right. a little longer, and they have other things that they that they that they gain from their rela- uh, relationship with this dragon lord. Correct. Once the once the um, the pair have joined, they are joined not just by in body, but in spirit and in soul. So. Their spirits are joined and their minds are joined by revealing everybody's past histories to each other. And that also joins their life forces. So the girl who was just chosen won't live just to be 60 or 80, but will live as long as her dragon mate lives as well, unless she is taken early by severe injury or by in childbirth. And childbirth is is not a as uh is of course always a painful experience in every world, but apparently it's it's uh more dangerous or at least as dangerous in the in the uh dragon world, right? I mean one one mate dies as a result 
and another mate comes pretty close to dying as a result. Well, it's what you would expect for the time period that this world represents. Um, there's not a lot of medical knowledge. It's not a modern world. It's more of a world set up in what I would say is equal to our middle ages. So the, um, medical abilities in those times are as, are what they are now. So yes, childbirth is a real issue in those days. So in the book, you, you, um, how conscious were you about sort of in, in weaving in the whole issue of, of, uh, uh, you know, sort of blind etiquette. You, you, there's quite a lot of, of, of talk about that. Was, was that a conscious decision on your part about how much to include and when to include it and all of that? Yes, it was because I think for those people who read the book who are not blind, it's always beneficial if those of us who are blind can kind of tell them or they can learn through means such as a book like this, what it's like. Um, most people don't even consider it. So the, by weaving in Dorian trying to learn how to deal with his or live with his now blind maid helps me tell the world this is what it's like to be blind. And so there's talk about how to handle the guide dog and it's talked about, uh, about how she uses a, I think you called it a stick, uh, in the book, uh, which is sort of analogous to the cane and the whole issue of holding on to people's elbow and, you know, all, all the sort of etiquette that we as blind people try to hope that people will follow. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of that in the book, which is sort of weaved, weaved into the story. Right. I just figured if I'm going to write a book about somebody who's blind, then it's kind of nice to teach the non-blind world a little bit as we go along. Absolutely. So a- after the wedding takes place, uh, well, I, I, um, the rest of the book it deals with um, a, a town, actually, where Tressa was was born and raised, and sort of the, shall we say, the seedier side of the town, um, and uh, trying to sort of bring the town back under control of the dragon lords. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Um, on Cordray, the towns are governed, you might say, by the magistrates. And there is also a minister in the town that oversees the um, spiritual side of the of things. And the magistrate in Cordiff turns out to be a little bit of a scoundrel and into some dirty dealings. And those positions of magistrate and minister are chosen by the dragon lords, so the dragon lords have to figure out what's been going on and figure out what the magistrate's been doing and then choose a new magistrate to take his place and find out about the criminals within the town. So what are some of the tools uh, that the that the um, uh, dragon lords use to figure out what went on in these towns? One of the, the talents, you might say, of the dragon lords is that they can read people's minds though they don't invade people's minds until they're until de- there's a reason to do it um 
They also have the ability to what I call mind speak in the book. And the dragons mind speak to each other all the time. The dragons are always connected and the dragon lords are always connected to so each we hear, other. So we hear their thoughts. Once they know somebody or they suspect somebody is up to no good, and they have some proof that there may be an issue with that, they will bring them in for an inquest, and then they will do a probe of their mind by a dragon. And the really, in the really serious case, they actually turn into the dragon so that they can, uh, uh, they, they can read minds more efficiently or uh, whatever the right word is. To do a deeper dive, you deeper might dive. say, into That's their the mind. Yeah, a deeper dive. So uh, the, the the mind reading is at its best when they're actually in dragon form, but they can do it in 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 dragon lord form as well. They just uh it, they um and and they they have control over how 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 deeply to invade the mind, right? Correct. So um a, a part of the uh the, so so the the rest of the book sort of deals with sort of bringing justice to the town and all the uh what happens uh through through the book and um what interested me uh is part of what interested me is the the guilty parties essentially either went to jail went to prison right went to uh prison Correct. and uh it's sort of a hard life for a number of years or they were put to death and there were there are a number of ways they could be put to death one of the ways they could put, be put to death was by dragon fire Talk about the significance of that that uh, choice of being put to death. Um, well, I had thought that a execution by dragon fire would be one way, and if the dragon's lords will be in a circle around the person, and then they will all shift into their dragon forms, and then spew fire at the guilty party this execution is very quick with so many dragons setting them on fire it also cremates the body and the soul of the person is then released to to go on to the next realm so the soul is 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 purified as it were as i understand as i read it right right it's purified by the yeah, it's purified by the dragon fire, especially if they have confessed their wrongdoings and to eliminate the stain from their soul, then the dragon fire purifies it. Sort of like repenting. Correct. And, and that's, that's sort of what intrigued me. You know, uh, you know, there's a whole talk about the death penalty and whether it's sort of moral or immoral or whether it's justified and all this stuff. But, you know, when somebody is put to death in this country, you know, for, for wrongdoing, their soul isn't necessarily purified, right? Through, through the process. If it's right. purified, it's done beforehand by, by prayer that, that they make or whatever. But, uh, and this, this, this was sort of a unique way to sort of purify souls, I thought, you know, where, uh, the, the dragon's fire does that for them if, if, if they have confessed. And have acknowledged their, if they have acknowledged their guilt. Right. And, and the death penalty isn't given to everybody who does wrong. It's right. got to be pretty extreme and they pretty much, you have to first commit murder. But, uh, and, and then there is one, uh, uh, and 
I, if I remember correctly, the women, and there are several, well, one woman especially, who is a particular, two actually, who are particularly, uh, do particularly dastardly things in the book. And one woman, uh, is sent to, is sent to prison for the rest of her life. Uh, and the other woman is given the choice of, of, of either being put to death or going to prison. And she sort of waffles and decides to go to prison. Um, are women treated, how are women treated in this, in the society compared to men? Um, in that society, the dragon lords are reluctant to, to put a woman to death. And since that woman had physically herself only killed one person, they gave her the choice. If she had been responsible of, for killing more, the dragon lords may have looked at it a little differently. But they did want her removed from the rest of society where she wouldn't have the chance to do harm to others. In some ways, just, just, uh, uh, hold on for a second. In some ways, she, I thought in some ways she was the worst of the bunch, uh, and all the stuff that she did. And I understand the, the logic, but I, I thought if, you know, if of all the people who did all the, uh, things, she was, she sort of was the ringleader of, of this whole thing. She, she, she was pretty deep into it, but she also have to remember that her main goal throughout her life was for what she saw as status, power, and money. And putting her into prison is actually more of a punishment than death would have been. I often wonder, uh, if, uh, that being, being put in jail for the rest of your life with no chance of parole is, is is worse than the death penalty. That's a lot of people believe that. Yeah, that's an interesting conversation for another time. Uh, Bob, before uh, we open our program to our participants, El, could you tell us how people can find your books? Um, the books are available on Amazon and Smashword, and they can be accessed through those places, or you can. Go to DLD Books slash EL Roth or my own website of elroth.myportfolio.com. So let's make sure people all spell it. Is it EL Roth? E-L-R-O-F as in Frank, F as in Frank. EL Roth. Okay, cool. Uh, right. All right. And let's see if there are any questions or comments for the, uh, for EL. So, Ray, you can let us know if there are any hands raised. You are listening to In Perspective with Bob Branco and Peter Alchil, and our guest is author E.L. Roth. So does anybody um, want to ask her a question? doesn't appear. Uh, if anyone has any questions, do. Uh, um, okay, here we go. We got Musi um, Allard. Uh, you are have your hand raised. Yes. My question is... Um, how did you feed all this imagination? It's fantastic. And I think, I think it sounds, um, um, very, very creative, but I wanted to ask a question about real life. Why were you uh, let go from your uh, paralegal job? Um, the, the attorney I was working for was reducing his practice as he went to semi retire and he had uh, three, 
three legal assistants and he decided that he was going to let one of them go and I was the one he chose. Well, were you blind at the time? Yes. Okay. Mm. So you had uh, a varied life, haven't you? <laughs> okay. Thank you. I do plan to read your book, and I don't really usually read, but this makes so much narrative sense. I think I'll enjoy it. Thank you. I hope you do read it. Okay. Uh, next up is Annie. Annie, welcome. Hey, hi, Hey, Elf. Annie. Hey. Um, I have a question about the uh, some of the fantasy authors that you might have read that maybe influenced what you wrote. Oh, my goodness. Authors I've read in the past. Well, I've read Stephen King and Nora Roberts and um, J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> and um, a lot of different authors. Michael Crichton, you name it, I probably have read a book by them. So, and 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 which which authors authors do you think had the most influence on you writing uh, this particular book? I can't. I, I know that I read a series of Dragon Shifter books, but I couldn't tell you the author's name of them. But and I'd read other Shifter books, and. I liked it that I could choose the magic that pertained to these dragon shifters, how it happened. For example, so many shifter books, the person has to be naked before they shift. And I decided that if you can make a dragon appear from somebody, (laughs) why not make it so that the person can appear fully dressed? (laughs) Right. <laughs> I think, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, um, you know. If, I have another question. Uh huh. Um. So it's Annie again. Uh, um. I I um wanted to ask you. You know, authors um usually fall into one of two categories: either you're a writer of discovery, you know, or you're a planner. Um, which one are you or are you in between the two and, and how can you describe your writing process when you're writing a book? My writing process is I usually decide on the, the basic theme of the book and then decide how the book's going to begin and in the end, how the book is going to progress to its end and what steps I need to take to make it get there. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds I, like you're a planner. <laughs> well, a little bit of a planner, but I also let the book, as it progressed, decide for myself. Yeah. Decide for itself. Inheriting Ghost Manor, I had thought at first it was going to turn out to be this one story plot, but as I sat down to write it and I started actually planning out each of the themes, it took a whole different turn and wasn't at all how I thought it was going to be initially. Isn't that interesting how the books do that to us, right? The, char- <laughs> the, char- the characters had their own way they wanted yeah. the story told. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. And thank you, Annie. Uh, Ray. Uh, there is nobody else. All right. Well, we'll if, just yeah. interrupt us if somebody has the hand raised. 
I well, well, since nobody's raising their hand, I will say that the next Prophecy of Dragon book will be coming out later this year or the beginning of next year. It has been sent to my editor to put into her stack of books to work on, and that is Prophecy of Dragon Heart. Is that going to be out before or after your Ghost Manor sequel, your Ghost Island sequel? Ghost Island book is going to be out in just a few weeks. Alan, uh, my Lenore, my editor, has ordered the proof copy of it. So it's going to be out really quick. And the other one is in our stack of work to do. So as we've so you've answered this question a little bit, but I'd be curious to know if you had any, any other thoughts to it. There are lots of books with sort of this dragon slash new age, I'm sorry, uh, middle ages slash, uh, you know, uh, weapons of swords and, and all that stuff. How does this book differ, differ from other books of that genre? Um, I haven't read a whole lot of what they call dungeons and dragon type books. So I don't know how they would compare to the others of those particular genre. I've read a few, but not a lot. So I would imagine I a book like, I'd imagine the book of like Stephen King's The Dark Tower series is might not be exactly the same, but has some similarities to it perhaps. I didn't read Stephen King's Dark Towers series. Ah, okay. Okay. Well then uh um yeah I um so um I, I, it was it's clear from the way this book ends that there'd be that there'd be a series uh, that there'd be a sequel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that this is the sequel of of what what goes on right uh, after the ending of the first book, presumably. Yes, Drag, uh, Prophecy of Dragonheart takes off six years after Prophecy of Dragonsight ends. Okay. So, um, what other uh, we we talked sort of about the 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 dragon? What makes the dragon lords unique? What are the key um, components of the society, the rest of the society? Uh, you know, uh, how, how how is it? Uh, what, what do people do? Where do they live? Uh, you know, what, what are sort of like the the key elements of, of that of the of the social system there? Uh, the rest of that society is like what you would expect from something like I said in the twelfth or thirteenth century of our own world. Small villages or village or towns not terribly large. Cordriff, um, Cordiff, the town that she's from, she lives on the outskirts on a small farm. Tressa does, but, um, as does Anna, but the town itself is soon 500 people in it. So it's a pretty small town and everybody has their own position within the town, shopkeeper, baker. Um, there's a bar, a tavern in the town. There's also um, the, everybody has their job that they do in order to support their family, farmers, sheep herders, those kind of thing. What did Tressa do as a blind woman before the, the, the dragon lord swept, swept her off her feet, so to speak? Or swept her on his back, as the case might be. <laughs> she um, she lived with her uncle, and they owned the farm, but he decided he didn't want to work the farm anymore. He was pretty lazy and slovenly, so she knitted to make 
shawls and scarves and other things that he would then sell to provide for the food for the household after he had sold anything of value left at the at the farm that they lived in. There was also some assistance given to Tressa behind her uncle's back from the minister who the town did have a charity that for orphans and um, widows that they would provide for, but they had to do it on the slide because if the uncle knew that the Tressa was getting any charity, he would have simply taken it from her and sold it for his own use, where he spent most of his time drinking away the profits at the bar. Yeah, there's, there's like in every other uh, uh, town, there's a pub, right? And the pub is where a lot of the bad stuff takes place behind the scenes, we find out as the book goes on. Right. And so addition to the uncle, the uncle, actually the uncle isn't just drinking. He's, he's, uh, uh, a, a part of the bad guy's uh, uh, clique, as it were. He does certain criminal, things. Criminal conspiracy, yes. Criminal <laughs> conspiracy, yeah, exactly. Um, there, there are some some allusions to the book about sort of the faith tradition or the spiritual traditions of the town. It's not talked about a lot, but when you were sort of planning for the book, did you have any thoughts as to what that spiritual tradition might look like? Like, for example, the dragons worshipped as deities, for example? You know, what, what's sort of the spiritual uh, under? No, not so much the dragons. The dragon lords and the dragons are not worshipped as deities, but rather the creator who created the world and created the dragons and the dragon lords. And did, did, you, have, did you have any feel for that, that creator, what, what, what uh, the, his, he, his, her attributes were? You know, what, what made this creator unique? No, I uh, pretty much it would be they just really talk about the creator just a little bit. And it's not so much through the minister as it is from Dorian when he's explaining how the planet came about to Tressa. And he explained that the dragons had always lived on the world and they grew lonely. So they asked the creator for mates to help to spend their time with. And then so the creator then made the non-dragons to occupy the world and mandated that the dragon lords were to see to the protection of the non-dragons. So are there any uh, evil dragon lords? And I, I know they're not in the book, but when you were thinking about this, uh, were, were there sort of, yeah. The dragons, because they are so linked, know the minds and hearts of the fellow dragons and they would not allow an evil dragon to be formed. They cannot hide their thoughts from their other dragons because they are so intertwined. And so they won't allow those, those dragons or dragon lords to come about. They in are other words, in other words, unlike human beings in real life, these dragons couldn't get away with doing things behind other dragons' back. No, because they're all so linked, so they all know what's going on with the other one. That's pretty – I'm sorry. I was just going to say, while we're talking about it, I did want to mention that the cover for both of my books were designed by my son. Now, talk about the cover designs. Uh, You know, what what do the covers look like, as it were? So, Prophecy of Dragon Sight is a – it has – 
two eyes on it, and those eyes look different, but they're both the same color. And the reason they're two different kind of eyes is to show the duality of the dragon lord. One's a human eye and one is a reptile eye. And there's also an outline of a girl or a shaded in girl with that is Tressa and her eyes are glowing. And that's because as the, their bonding between Tressa and Dorian occurs, she starts to see through the dragon eye. So she sees what the dragon and she sees what Dorian sees, which fulfills Dorian's prophecy that he will give the one her sight. So does, does, uh, does Tressa ever fully able to see without the aid of the dragon lord? No, she no. only sees through her dragon lord's eyes. So um, she has to be close to him or his sight needs to be something that will do her good. Otherwise she is still blind. And as it turns out, uh, he can also look through her eye or through her mind because there's a moment where he needs to find her. And part of the way he finds her is by, uh, you know, linking with her and, and, you know, and, and getting close enough to her to, to, to rescue her. Revert. Yeah. He kind of reverse reverses the magic to see where she is through her eyes. That's right. Yeah. So it's a reverse sight giving or something. Um, yes. one of the interesting things about the book. I don't want to give and that part away too much. Yeah. The second thing that as the book progresses turns out is that Tressa also is given the ability of foresight where she sees events in the future as well. So. Yeah. And that's sort of a surprise to everybody. You know, she, she, she had this skill, but, uh, she, she sort of hid it from herself and from the, from the rest of the, Community, well, sort of, but it didn't really it, connect until she until she married the the dragon lord. It it grew, it blossomed after her joining with the dragon lord. But the interesting thing was she had it. She had she had inklings of it before before. Right, it, right. But it, as you said, it grew. I want to and, acknowledge, acknowledge Leonor has a question. Or let's, yeah, let's get Leonor on. Welcome, Leonor. We better get her on because she she's edited all our books as well. She sure has, and then some. That's right. She Leonor. LD books. Leonor. Okay, now I'm there unmuted. You there you are. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Now I'm, now I'm unmuted. Well, Beth, it's so delightful to actually see you. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I love how you have posters of your books behind you there. Oh, nice. Yeah, it looks great. And, um, I think you've done an absolutely fabulous job of summarizing the book without giving away too much. And uh, I hope everybody is intrigued. I just absolutely loved editing both of these books. And as she said, as Beth said, we are uh, we're very close to getting the third book out. And in the very few minutes that we have left, if you'll give me your permission, I would like to just read the synopsis on on the back here of Inheriting Ghost Manor because we haven't talked about that book very much. We have three minutes left in the program. Okay. So yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Leonor. I think that's a fabulous idea. Sure. It's sure. And by the way, she wrote the synopses of the books. I think they're great. Okay. So what would you do if you found yourself inheriting a haunted manor? KT is having the worst year of her life. After the death of her mother, her last living relative, she's being evicted from her family home. She's also broke. 
Her fiancé has taken off with everything of value in her house and has cleaned out her bank account. Then, out of the blue, a British lawyer arrives to tell her that she is the sole heir of a recently deceased great-uncle, one George Thorndike. With the generous funds supplied by her visitor, KT travels to England, where she will learn the complex details of the inheritance. She's also eager to learn as much as she can about the history of her previously unknown family. Once in England, she discovers that the centuries-old house she is to inherit is haunted, and that in order to receive the massive fortune, she has to live in the manor for a year. That's just the beginning of her troubles. <laughs> so, and and I want to say just real quickly, both of the books are very elaborately plotted, but there, but you can you can easily follow the plot. The plot they don't jump back and forth, or she didn't make them unnecessarily complicated. But there are a lot of characters in both books, all of whom I felt were very well drawn, very very believable. And I mean, even considering the dragon stuff, <laughs> considering the the world, it's all very very believable. And Beth, I just I'm I'm so filled with admiration for your imagination, as well as your planning and plotting. And it's just such a pleasure to work with you. Thank you. So how was the how was the editing process between the two of you? How did that how did that work? I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, I work with her the way I work with everybody or most everybody. Um, you know, I go through it. I, of course, I always correct for, you know, spelling, punctuation, grammar, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> every once in a while, there'll be something that I'll ask a question about. Um, and I, I'm, I've gotten in the habit now of sending rather elaborate, uh, editing notes. Uh, that is, I tell the client why I'm making certain corrections, like with words or whatever. I make suggestions uh once in a while and then the client either accepts or rejects that su- that suggestion but I We are running we are yeah. running late at the moment we have to yeah. But very here. you're very uh, easy to work with Beth. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much Leonor for your contribution and Beth keep up the good work one more time on the site so that people can buy your book dldbook/elrock r o f f is in frank or elrock dot myportfolio.com they're available on smashword and amazon yeah Thank but it needs to be www.dldbooks.com and then a slash and then el roth yeah or just go to just go to amazon too and look her up el roth r-o-f-f thank you leonor thank you el <laughs> Yeah, and thank you, El. Continued success with your upcoming books. I'm sure they're going to be just as successful as the two that you talked about today. Us authors all know what it's like. We stick together and we support one another. That's for sure. All right. So next week we're going to have a disabilities advocate on the program. She's got her own business. She used to be the head of our local commission for the blind here in Massachusetts, among other things. Janet Lebrecht will be here next week. Peter, thank you as always. Ray. Of course, EL, our guests, our participants, everybody else. Go safe with God's abundant blessings and have a great week, everybody. 